This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth in Hartsdale, New York. Grace and Truth was planted in 2002 and is seeking to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedlam. And the people went about and gathered it, and around it in handmills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans and everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. And I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you'll treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. And the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, And bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand with you, and I'll come down and talk with you there. And I'll take some of the spirit that's on you, and I'll put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it alone yourself. And say to this people, Consecrate yourselves to tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us to be in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people among whom I am, who I am, number 600,000 on foot. And you've said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, As the Lord's hand shortened, now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent 
And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to them. And he took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but had not gone up to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And the young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. And those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for, for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hadava, because they were because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hadava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. This is the reading of God's holy word. Now obviously I read the whole chapter so that we would have context and perspective, but our main focus is going to be on verses 1 through 6. And I chose this passage in light of the holiday that just passed. Thanksgiving is is a unique holiday. It's one of my favorite holidays, and I like it for several reasons. Number one, it's an American holiday. It celebrates the providence of God in founding and keeping our nation that we're richly blessed and that by God and we're reminded of his grace. And two, it's rooted in a deep Judeo-Christian heritage of worshiping God through giving thanks. God's people are known for being thankful people and our thankfulness is evidence of our own reflection and appreciation for the grace of God in our lives. And we see that the Bible teaches us this. Psalm 50 Verse 23 says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. In the New Testament, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Thankfulness and gratitude are at the heart of every true believer. A.W. Toza said, Gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God, and it is one that the poorest of us can make and be no poorer for having made it. But are we always thankful? Are we always have an attitude of gratitude? Not really. In fact, the longer I think about it, the more I consider my own life and the lives of those around me, I think that we take God's grace for granted in our lives. For many of us, we overlook the good God does. We, we kind of take it as a, as a it's there and it's not going to go anywhere. We don't really think about it and consider all the good. Instead, we always think of the things we don't have. We always think of the things we would wish we could have and don't. And that begins to create cravings or desires in us, which ultimately is coveting when we want something so badly and we can't have it, we don't think we'll be happy unless we do. 
such coveting and such discontentment, these grumbling and complaining. Instead of giving thanks, we find fault with God. We become angry and bitter in our situations. And I think nowhere is as clearly seen the, the lust and the covetousness of people than in Thanksgiving. Well, how do, you, how do you figure that? Well, don't you find it ironic that on a day we're supposed to be thankful, giving, being content, that people are rushing out from dinner to go shopping on Thursday night to get the best deals out there? I mean, Friday morning I was reading the news and, and I'm reading the list of all the fist fights. People were punching each other out in Tennessee in a Walmart over toilet paper on sale. If that's not the root of covetousness, I don't know what is. We've turned Thanksgiving into a materialistic circus of people running from dinners, waiting in long lines, all so they can get more things. That brings me to my passage today. I selected this passage because I, I believe it speaks to our generation more so than than ever. This passage is a snapshot in the life of the generation of Israelites whom God delivered from Egypt and their wanderings in their wilderness. This was a very unique and privileged generation, more so than any generation in history. Why? Well, think about all that they experienced. Think about all they saw. They were slaves in Egypt. They were for, into forced labor. They had no freedom. They had no rights. And God delivered them. God sent Moses. And with a mighty and outstretched hand, through ten plagues, God systematically demolished the Egyptian empire. He brought Egypt to its knees. He demonstrated his greatness and his glory in such a marvelous way. And the Israelites who witnessed this miraculous, this marvelous intervention of God in world history were even protected in the midst of this, in the land of Goshen. I mean, just imagine if you had lived in that time and seen plague after plague after plague of God systematically breaking the Egyptian empire down. In a great culmination, God miraculously delivered Israel when he parted the Red Sea and the, the Israelites were to walk through the whole nation and then God closed it up on Pharaoh to eyewitness the Shekinah glory of God in the, in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of smoke. They were eyewitnesses of God's majesty and glory when He revealed Himself from Mount Sinai. They heard the voice of God. It shook them in their boots. They hid in caves and said, Hide us from the voice. Moses, you speak to God. We, we can't bear to hear His voice. But they heard the voice of God. They saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai. This was a privileged generation. When they were hungry, God miraculously provided bread from heaven for them. They would gather up the manna every day and bake cakes. When they were thirsty, God provided water for them to drink. When you think about it, they really were a truly remarkable and privileged generation. It's hard to believe that they were also the most ungrateful generation in the Bible. You can't help but to read through the book of Numbers and time after time after time all they did was complain, murmur, and grumble. Instead of seeing all that God had done in their lives, 
All they could think of is what they lacked. All they could do was grumble and murmur. Oh, why are we out in this desert? Did you lead us to die? We were better off slaves. I mean, what an insult to God. We were better off when we were slaves. Why did you bring us out here? We don't have food. We want meat. And that brings us to the very topic today. What were they complaining about? They were finding fault with the manna God had provided. They wanted meat to eat. It wasn't enough. It's interesting because what brought me to even teach on this topic today is a couple of weeks ago. I'm going through a period right now with my own two girls. And they, for whatever reason, don't like anything I feed them. So whatever we feed them, I don't like this. This doesn't taste good. I don't want to eat this. I don't want to eat that. And so one day I was sitting at the table and the two girls were complaining about their dinner and I told them the story of Numbers chapter 11. (laughs) Well, believe it or not, they ate their meal and were thankful. Especially when they heard the part about when the Israelites were eating meat and God struck them dead. You know, these things are not in the Bible for just a historical account. But Romans 15.4 tells us whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction and through endurance and through an encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope. And so what I want to do is use this as a lesson for us today. A lesson for the people of God on the peril of complaining. The danger of complaining. At the end of the day, there is no use complaining. You know the old saying, no use complaining because nobody cares? Well, let's think of this. No use complaining because it offends God. And that's what I really want to look at today. So let's look at the first thing. What is complaining? This complaining or grumbling or murmuring, it's when we inwardly or outwardly express dissatisfaction or discontentment with our circumstances. It's a spirit of negativity which only sees the bad, emphasizes it, and protests it in some form that it is unacceptable. Spurgeon says this, Complaining is a sin by definition of being dissatisfied with the lot God has given us and despising the good he has given us. It is a rejection of his sovereignty and wisdom by thinking we know better than God and we deserve better than what we have. Now, not all complaining is bad. I mean, we do read portions of the Psalms where David cries and complains to the Lord about about those who seek his life, about those who are plotting to kill him. But their complaints in terms of laying his heart bare before the Lord that God would help him. On the other hand, when we look at the book of Numbers, we're looking at complaining that is rooted in rebellion and insolence. It was a pattern. First it was the golden calf. It was disbelief in entering Canaan. It was the complaint against the conditions of the food and water. It was a complaint against Moses' authority. And ultimately we see in the end of the book of Numbers the worshipping of Baal of Peor with the Moabites that ended in the whole generation being wiped out. The, the generation of the Israelites was, was a generation characterized by rebellion and insolence. And the murmuring and complaining was only the outward expression of their inward rebellion against God. These were people who made a habit of complaining. They saw the bad in everything. They were critical. They were complainers. They were negative. They were grumblers. They were never satisfied. They were always finding fault. Do you know anyone like that? I'm sure we have a few people in our lives that are like that. Maybe you're like that. 
Maybe you're a grumbler complainer. Are you someone who has an eye that always tries to find the bad in things and never sees the good? Ultimately, complaining is foolishness. Well, because whenever we complain against someone or something in our life, ultimately we're complaining against God. Because God is sovereign. God is sovereign over everything in our life. He is sovereign over the people in our lives. He is sovereign over the circumstances in our life. God is in complete control, and he has you right where he wants you to be. So whenever we grumble or complain about our spouse, or we grumble and complain about our church, or we grumble and complain about our car, or we grumble and complain about our job, what we're really doing is complaining about God, because if we believe in the sovereignty of God, we're saying, God, if you knew any better, you would change my circumstances. Isaiah 45.9 tells us this, Woe to you who strive with your maker, earth and vessels with the potter. Does the clay say to the one who fashions it, What are you making? Your work has no handles. Are we the, the creation to say to the creator, What are you doing? Don't you know better, God? But many times when we complain or we're dissatisfied with what's going on in our lives, ultimately, that's the root of it. We think that God doesn't know what he's doing. We think that God needs our counsel, you know, our wisdom. We need to have a conference. Look on, God, let's have a conference. I think you need a little education on this. God doesn't need our, our counsel. He doesn't need our wisdom. God knows exactly what he's doing. Lamentations 3.39 says this, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Why should any who draw breath complain about the punishment of their sins? Jeremiah, in lamenting the fall of Jerusalem, recognizes that from God both good and bad come. Who are we to complain? Sometimes we don't know if God is using circumstances to discipline us in our sin. In other words, we have no right to complain at the end of the day. God owns our lives, and he can do whatever he's fit with with our lives. He's not obligated to you or I in any way. The only thing he's obligated to is his holiness and his righteous character. In fact, the only thing God owes us, the only thing that we deserve from him is judgment and wrath. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners. We have all sinned against an infinitely holy God. We have incurred a debt with God. We have incurred a judgment with God. And in order, if you really want God to be just and fair, and you want your just desserts, then God should kill you right now and send us all to hell. So don't ever say, God, I want need you to be fair with me. God is not fair, and I'm thankful He's not fair. He's gracious. He's merciful. In fact, in His infinite love, He's more generous and gives us far more than you deserve. You see, at the core of it, when we complain, we have a warped view of reality. When we complain about our life and the circumstances of our life, we we are really thinking that we deserve better than what we have because we have a, a higher view of ourselves than is real. And we have a warped view of God because we think that He doesn't know what He's doing, that He should treat us better than what we're getting. And so what it really is is a warped view of God and a warped view of self. We think much better of ourselves and we think much worse of Him. But that's the nature of sin. Nothing is more offensive than complaining about your life, complaining to God. And I go back to the original illustration when I used about my own children. 
How many of you have children by show of hands? How many of you are happy and delighted when your children complain to you about how you're raising them or how you clothe them or, or how you feed them? Do you take pride and joy when your children complain to you? Do you take pride and joy when your children complain about your house or where you live or your clothing you put on their backs? There's nothing that irks a parent more than when our kids complain. What about spouses? How many of you have spouses that complain about you? Don't raise your hands. You'll get in trouble. Or do you complain about your spouse? How do you feel when your spouse complains to you about you? It hurts. It irks you, right? You don't want to come home and be complained about and criticized. Well, how much worse is it with God? How do you think God feels? A God who is holy, benevolent, gracious, kind, who has given us, I mean, gave us his son. I always go back to Romans 8. If God gave us his only son, he didn't spare his only son, how much more will he give to you? What more do you want out of God? He gave you his son to die on a cross. God's not cheap. God is... God is extremely generous that he gave his son as a gift for you. If God never did another thing for you for the rest of your life, but gave you his son to die on a cross to save you from your sins, that is sufficient. And so we can go through the day when God, when people come up to you and say, hey, how you doing, Joe? Oh, I'm having a terrible day. Oh, things are terrible at work. Oh, my wife and kids don't, don't, don't cooperate with me. You know what you should say? I'm doing better than I deserve. Because at the end of the day, we are always doing better than we deserve. Amen? Amen. Nothing is more offensive than to have people complain when you're good to them. All right. What is the cause of complaining? Let's go back to this. Look at, let's go back to this. Look at verse um, 4 through 6. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. This is our second point, the cause of complaint. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, onions, garlic, but now our strength is dried up. There's nothing to look at at all but this manna to eat. All right, so there's two things going on here. A passage tells us their complaining was about food. Okay? Ultimately, their belly was directing them. Their belly was the source of their dissatisfaction. And the Bible says they had a strong craving. That's an interesting word there, strong craving. And it's rooted in in the concept of covetousness. In the Greek, uh, the word for covet or covetousness is epitumeo. And it literally means to have a strong desire, a strong craving. You know when you want something really bad and you just... You just got to have it, right? I mean, think of a pregnant woman when she just has that strong desire for pickles and peanut butter at 11 o'clock at night. You know, it's that, it, you know, it's that strong lust, that strong desire when you really want to satisfy your craving, your appetite. And at the root, that's what coveting is. Coveting at the core and at the root is a strong desire and a wanting of something so badly that we, we feel dissatisfied and discontent until we had it. Now, in this case, we had the Israelites who were eating manna. 
They were eating manna every day. Manna this, manna that, banana bread, manicotti. I mean, it was always something with manna, and they were tired of eating manna. And at this point, they wanted meat. They wanted, they wanted something to eat. And even worse is they're looking back to their slavery. They said, oh, we had all these things. And, and, and quite honestly, you wonder, leeks, garlic, onions, what a diet that is. But, but the point of the matter is, here were people who were starving for something else other than what God had given them. You see, complaining and coveting are inextricably linked. When we covet, it leads to complaining. The problem is when we turn these wants and desires, we somehow think we need it. We need to distinguish between wants and needs. When we are discontent with something, we convince ourselves we need it. Right? If I want something so badly, that luxury or that want becomes a need, and we figure I'm not going to be happy until I have it. And therefore, we prevent ourselves from enjoying the things we do have. This is rooted in pride because we think at the core of it we deserve better than what we have. And when we want something so bad and we turn into a need and it drives us, this leads to more sin. Well, what happens when we want something strong and we think we need it? We get greedy. We get anger. We get jealous. We have outbursts of wrath. Anyone or anything that gets in our way of getting what we want or we think we need becomes an obstacle. In this case, the Israelites, Moses and God, were their obstacle. They wanted meat. They would rather go back to being slaves in Egypt so they could fill their bellies than to follow the Lord. How sad is that? And I think spiritually that speaks of a lot of Christians. There are a lot of people, or I should say professing Christians, who, who have experienced the grace of God, who have experienced great liberation from their sin, who have experienced the forgiveness of sin, and, and, in their, and in a time where the sin nature gets control of them, They'd rather go back to their old ways to satisfy their bellies, to satisfy their, their own desires than to follow on with God. What are some of the things that God has withheld from you that you wish you had and would make you happier? Are you single and wish to be married? Are you married and wish to be single? Do you desire a better house, a better position? a better salary, a child that's better behaved, better food to eat, better outfit to wear. Maybe you're a husband, you want a submissive wife, or you're a wife who wants a loving husband. What happens is when you create this thing that you think you need, that you want and you think you need, and you won't be happy unless you have it, you turn that into an idol. You know what's interesting the Tenth Commandment says this. Listen to this, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. Coveting goes beyond meat and your belly. Coveting can mean anything that you create as a need that you think you need to be happy. And that becomes an idol. That becomes an idol. The First Commandment says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other God except for me. The Tenth Commandment says you shall not covet. Do you notice the two bookends of the Ten Commandments say the same thing? It's essentially saying that God is your all in all. You're to be content and satisfied in Him. And if you are devoted or passionate 
or desire anything more than God, then you're worshiping an idol. And the New Testament affirms that Colossians 3.5, that those who covet are guilty of idolatry. Coveting is idolatry. Look in, look in James chapter 4 for a second. Listen to verse 1, 4, 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? These are these lusts, these desires, these cravings. They're at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You see, you see at the core of this, guys, is that when we have these strong cravings and it takes control of us, we lose control. That's where fighting and wars and, I mean, that's what it all comes down to. People want and they can't have and so... And so they, there's battles and we fight. But ultimately we're fighting against God. We become God's enemy when we, and we, we ask, sometimes we pray for those things. When God says no, we need to learn to accept it. When God says no, he says no for a good reason. What does he say to Paul when Paul says three times, I prayed, 2 Corinthians 12, that this thorn be removed from me. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee. How many times in your life have you prayed for something and God has said no? Do you, do you buck against him? You say, I thank you for the manna you've given me. Or do you keep on your, your, your bent that i got to have meat? God is saying, my grace is sufficient for thee. You know what the irony is? You'll never be happy even when those desires are met. When you're governed by an ungrateful and discontent spirit, no matter how much you get, it's never enough. He who loves money never has money enough. Remember, the people complained that they had no food and God gave them manna. Then they got sick of the manna. And they complained more. How many times you see people who complain? When you see a complainer, you know what you notice about their disposition? They're always going to complain no matter how much they have. No matter what goes on in their life, they're going to find fault. They're going to complain because they're discontent at their core. Point is this, we must be careful not to give in to our carnal appetite for comfort, for entertainment, for amusement, and a life of ease. This desire can be strong and dominate our lives, but it's deadly. We either live for our bellies or we live for Christ. Listen to Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Right, keep your eyes on those like Paul who are following hard after Christ. For many whom I have often told you now, tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why? Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. The person who professes Christ, but is always pursuing worldly pleasures, worldly comfort, worldly security, and worldly things, their God is their belly. And by the way, 
And that's not just talking about food. It's talking about your appetite for just just carnal things in life. You'll never be satisfied. You'll always want more. It's like a ravenous monster. You can never satisfy it. Following Christ means denying our belly. It means denying worldly passions. It means denying self and being completely satisfied with Christ. Secondly, we we look at the cause of complaining was the influence of the rabble. The word rabble there in Hebrew means worthless persons or fools. Essentially, in the Bible, it's people devoid of the knowledge and fear of God. And at the end of the day, malcontents neither fear God nor love God. They only love themselves. We're surrounded by rabble. We're surrounded by rabble every day. Rabble of the world. Sometimes it's close to home. Sometimes you have family members. You're, you, you know, you're living with people who don't know the Lord. And, and you're surrounded by complainers and grumblers and murmurers and people who are malcontents. And it could become contagious. You see, this, this little group of rabble was contagion the whole nation. It was contagion having a widespread influence. And, and that's how complaining is, right? Complaining spreads like cancer. It influences everybody. You hang around a complainer long enough, guess what? You're going to start grumbling and complaining and finding fault. And on the flip side of that, if you're a complainer and grumbler, you're going to make other people around you grumble and complain. The old saying says, birds of a feather flock together. You ever notice that some people who love to grumble and complain tend to stick together? But don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I think there's a couple of things we have to take from this. Number one, be careful who you hang around with. Right? Now, that doesn't... Sometimes you cannot disassociate yourself from certain people, depending how close they are in your lives. But if you're able to, and you're just around a negative person who's always complaining and finding fault, you need to distance yourself. You need to distance yourself because that person is going to have an influence on you. And on the second hand of there... Think before you complain. Think about who you're affecting around you. Think about when you grumble or you murmur. You know, I remember years ago when we first started the church, we, we were very limited in musical ministry. And, and, you know, our worship service wasn't always, you know, running smoothly. We didn't have a lot of instruments. Sometimes we sang a cappella. And, you know, it was always the grumble. Oh, the worship service really stunk today. And then, you know, if only we had a guitar player, if only we had a drummer, if only we had... And then, little by little, it spreads to each person. And everybody starts to complain, yeah, you're right, you know, if only we had... And before you know it, you've got a large group of people complaining and grumbling. And, and, and then before you know it, people start come, stop coming to church during the worship hour because they want to miss it completely. It's contagious. We have to be careful when we grumble and complain that we don't affect others around us. Because what we're doing, listen to this, when we're complaining, we're actually not loving people. We're injuring them in a way that's only self-serving so we could vent. That's not loving. There's nothing loving about complaining and grumbling to others. It is self-serving so you can vent and you're causing that person to stumble. Like the old saying goes, no use complaining because nobody cares. It's really true. Thirdly, the consequences of complaining. The consequences of complaining. Well, what happened? 
It says in verse 1, the people complaining here of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. God's, God's glory, his fire, literally burned up in the camp, and, and divine judgments were pouring out and literally killing people uh, within the camp. And Moses was, was led, and so we see that as it unfolds here in chapter 11, God eventually... Um, says to Moses, I'm going to give the people what they want. I'm going to give them the meat to eat. You're not going to have it one day. You're not going to have it two days, a few days, ten. You're going to have it every day for a month till it's coming out of your nostrils. And then in the end, we see that as they were eating the meat, they choked and they died. God struck them with a plague and killed them while the meat was in their teeth. You know, there's a great lesson here. Be careful what you ask for, right? But I want to, I want to correct that because that would be the natural inclination here. We have a heavenly Father. If we ask Him for a piece of bread, does He give us a rock? No. So we don't have to be careful what we ask for. But what we are dealing with here is a group of rebels who complain so much that God brought judgment upon them. He brought discipline upon them for their discontent spirits. You see, when we complain, what we're really doing is provoking God to anger. We're provoking God. We're picking a fight with Him. Because we're insinuating that He's wrong and we're blaming Him for our problems. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, said this, Murmuring is quarreling with God and inveighing against Him. The murmurer says interpretively that God has not dwelt well, dealt well with Him and He deserves better. The murmurer charges God with folly and our murmuring is the devil's music. This is the sin that God cannot bear. It is a sin which wets the sword against the people. It is a land-destroying sin. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. God brought judgment upon them. I want you to think about it. They, they loathed the manna that God gave them. Numbers 21.5 said, says, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt, dying in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we detest this miserable food. They call the manna miserable food. But you know what Psalm 78, 25 tells us? It tells us the manna they ate was the bread of angels. When you call the bread of angels miserable food, you're provoking God to anger. And that's exactly what happened. Now, as believers, God may discipline us sometimes. God will not condemn us like the unbelievers, but God can and he will discipline us. The Lord doesn't get angry with us like those outside of our faith, but discipline is for our good so that we may share in his holiness, share in his righteousness. Sometimes that discipline could be much harsh, more harsh than expected. But just as the Father loves the Son and disciplines Him, so God disciplines us and loves us. You know what I mean? There's times I have to discipline my children and I hear them crying about something and I'll say, keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. Well, it's the same thing with God. God says, keep complaining, keep crying, and I'll give you something to cry about. We have to recognize that when we complain and provoke God, it is a bad place to be. You know, I thought about it sometimes. There are some things that I've wished for in life. God has denied me. There are some things I've really desired in life that God has denied me. 
And there's times I've complained and I've murmured and I've grumbled and I've wondered why. Why has God denied me? Why has God said no? And then I notice on the flip side of that, we read Psalm 73 earlier, why do the wicked prosper? I've seen people who are wicked, ungodly, nasty people, and it seems like they get everything they want. It seems like everything always goes their way. They just think about it and they get it. It's like everything, you know, you sometimes sit there and wonder, how come they get everything they want and I don't? But then my reason came to me, just like Asaph in Psalm 73. And you know what occurred to me? God loves me. And he knows what's good for me. And when he says no, there's a reason for it. When I say no to my children, it's because I love them. And then I thought on the flip side, those people who get everything they want in life, if you read through the prophets, there is a theme you see, particularly in Isaiah, particularly in Jeremiah, where God illustrates his judgment like fattening up, fattening up a lamb for the slaughter. All right? We just had turkey for Thanksgiving. On a lot of farms, you know what they do? Around, around August, they start feeding the turkeys a lot of food. They fatten them up and get them really big and large. The turkey is thinking, oh my goodness, I'm getting all this food. My farmer really loves me. (laughs) The turkey's getting fattened up for Thanksgiving. And And I've come to think of that on Judgment Day. How many people have been fattened up when they're going to face God on Judgment and give an account And the Lord's going to say, I've shown you so much favor and you couldn't even thank me. When God says no, he wants us to depend on him. God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me not poverty that I would steal against and sin against you. Or give me riches that I may forget you and profane your name. But give me that which is allotted to me should be the prayer of each and every one of us. Let's count ourselves blessed and be thankful when God says no. Let me conclude by saying this. Reading through the history of Israel in the wilderness shows that complaining and murmuring lead to demise. They led to their demise. They were faithless, godless, and ultimately they were controlled and dominated by their flesh. They died and did not enter the promised land. 1 Corinthians 10 11 through 12 says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction in whom the end of the age has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And so we understand the peril of complaining and murmuring. Let us take three things away from here that we could do to overcome complaining and murmuring. Number one, be content. Sounds simple, but the best way to overcome a covetous spirit the best way to overcome a complaining spirit is to be content with whatever God has given you. Be content with the manna that God has provided. Eat it, enjoy it, and thank God for it. Don't despise God's provision. In Philippians 4, 11 through 14, 13, Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every and all circumstances I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The core of that is understanding that contentment is based on not what our external circumstances are, but internally being completely satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's done and accomplished for us and in him alone that we are with Christ. 
True contentment comes only in that, not when we crave after the other things in life. Paul was content in all situations, whether he was rich or poor, because he knew no matter what, he had Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes God has to strip things away from us. Sometimes, you know, we go through seasons of loss. We just lose things left and right. The Lord allows that to happen sometimes. You know why? Because he wants you to see the, that, that you're missing the mark, that you should be treasuring Christ above all else. John Piper said a remarkable thing one time. He said, you know what someone's treasure is by how they react to when they lose it. If when you lose something in your life, you fall to pieces, you fall apart, then you realize that thing has become an idol in your life. And sometimes the Lord has to remove those things so that you could realize he is your only treasure. Be content with Christ. Be content with all that he's given us. The Lord tells us uh, in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 9, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Psalm 73, 25, the psalmist says in the end when he was uh, jealous of the wicked who had at ease and had everything he wanted, who he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, there's nothing else on earth. He recognized that if you have Christ, you have everything. Contentment is the realization that everything is a gift from God. I do not deserve it, and I have been blessed abundantly and exceedingly. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Secondly, the next step to overcoming a complaining and grumbling spirit is to be thankful. It goes hand in hand with contentment. If you are content and have a healthy view of life, then you will thank God. Just don't say, I'm thankful. Thank God in your prayers. What is your prayer life like? Is your prayer life consistent of requests and requests and requests and requests? How much do you thank God? Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You know, when you can come to God and just list all the blessings, literally count all your blessings and name them one by one to God. Thank you, God, for my family. Thank you for my health. Thank you for my job. Thank you I have money in the bank. Thank you for for all that you give me. Once you start listing all the blessings and thanking God, guess what? You'll find very little to ask for because you'll realize how abundantly rich you are. And thirdly, thirdly, a desire to glorify God by holy living. You see, one of the ways to squash or to overcome a desire for, for the things in life to satisfy us is to have a greater desire to honor God and glorify him in the midst of unbelievers. If there's one thing you don't want to do is be a poor example for the gospel to others. When Christians are cantankerous, grumpy, grumblers, malcontents, and complainers, it is the worst advertisement for the gospel ever. You're basically telling people, don't believe in Jesus. Life is miserable. It stinks. Listen to what it says again in Philippians. I've quoted a lot from Philippians. It's a great book to read. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We live amidst a crooked and perverse generation. The people of this world, the Gentiles, seek after these things. They seek after food and clothing and success and power and money and lust. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
Don't be malcontents. Don't grumble and complain. Let the joy of the Lord shine as light in your life. Let the unbeliever say, I don't know what that person has. They're, they may not have everything, but they're rich. They're joyful. I want what they have. Let us make the gospel, let us make Christ attractive to the world. That desire to make Christ attractive, to make the gospel attractive, will diminish our desire to complain and grumble in front of people. Complain does nothing to make us look like children of the king. No, it reflects the character of the world. In the end of the day, what does complaining accomplish? Nothing. Does it change anything? Nothing. The only people we hurt are ourselves. But if you've truly been humbled by the gospel, if you truly understand that Jesus took your sins upon himself, died on a cross, rose from the dead, and if you do not believe this, if you've not come to really receive the gospel, that you're a sinner, that you're on your way to hell, and unless you truly surrender your life and believe in Christ, you will not, you will not get to heaven. You will not die and enter eternal life. You will enter eternal damnation. You must believe in Christ. You must repent. You must turn from your sin, turn from the ways of this world. And if you've been humbled by that gospel, if you've come to faith, your heart and your mind will be transformed. And for those of us who are Christians, what kind of image do we want to portray to the unbelieving world? That we're a bunch of spoiled brats always griping when things don't go our way? Or that we are children of the King who are richer and more wealthy than any human being on the world? That is the truth, brothers and sisters. If you have Christ, you are immensely wealthy. You have everything. And you are to be joyful and thankful and project that joy, project that success, project that wealth to those who don't have Christ. That should be our greatest desire. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you and praise you once again for this time. Lord, as we read in this chapter about the children of Israel, Lord, we're truly reminded that they were these things were written for our example. Not a good example, but a poor example of what not to do. And God, we, we don't want to follow their example. We don't want to do what they do, but we're warned by this. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for convicting us, rebuking us. And so I thank you, Holy Spirit, that as your children, that we can turn, that you've given us the ability to live a joyful, fruitful, God-fearing life. I pray, Father, for each and every one of us here today. If any of us have been caught up in a grumbling or complaining spirit, I ask, Lord, that today you would help them to turn from that and renounce that. Help them to see the joy and the blessings they have in the gospel. I pray, Lord, that we would realize that you, Christ, became poor so that we may become rich. Help us to take delight, to be content, and to be thankful. We love you, Lord. We pray that you'd work in each and every one of our hearts. Change us more and more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit 
www.dg-cp.org.